We'll start our webinar with a brief introduction as usual um, from um, a security team member, uh, Noam Dwar. Um, he'll talk a little bit about cybersecurity's role uh, in the management of big data and deployment of AI models. And then our panelists will each get a chance to briefly introduce themselves. Afterwards, we'll get into a bit of a deeper discussion on everything related to AI and big data, including its challenges and solutions. And as usual, we'll leave about 30 minutes at the end uh, for a short Q&A. So um, if you have any questions throughout the discussion, feel free to drop them in the Q&A section below and uh, we'll get to them later on. Now, we have an impressive lineup of panelists tonight and I'm excited to have them each uh, introduce themselves to you. Uh, but first we'll begin with a short introduction from Noam um, the B VP of Solution Engineering at Hub Security before we hand off um, Mike for introductions. So uh, without further ado, Noam Dror, welcome to our panel tonight. Sounds good, thank you. Or today, you. wherever you are. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you can hear me okay? Perfect. Yes, go ahead. Okay. Hello everyone, uh, welcome. Uh, thank you for joining. My name is uh, Noam Dror. I run solution engineering here at Hub Security. I've been uh, doing uh, cybersecurity for the last few decades, working with uh, large customers, understanding their needs, their challenges, and finding solutions for those uh, kind of challenges. And I'm happy to be here on the, this session, uh, which will be about AI and big data. And uh, we can start with uh, just saying that we understand that AI is changing the world right now. Right, uh, from self-driving cars to assisted uh, healthcare with AI. You can see AI now in everything. So it's either becoming a competitive advantage to an existing solution, or it's becoming the source of a brand new technology or a new sector, uh, just because of the, the, the strength and the benefit it, uh, it provides. So the basis of uh, AI is a lot of data, big data. And data becomes a new currency. If you have more data, you have better AI. If you have better AI, you have a better chance to compete in the market or to do any kind of good or bad uh, on, the, on, the, on the market you're, you're working on. So, uh, you know, I like some quotes from movies. So with great power comes great uh, responsibility. Same thing with AI, right? Uh, we are going to talk about different uh, opportunities and challenges that uh, AI, uh, you know, uh, throw at us and uh, what are kind of uh, uh, solutions or, or uh, possible uh, uh, ways to solve some of those uh, challenges. And I'm uh, honored to be presenting in the, with this distinguished panel. So looking forward to a great conversation here and, uh, and uh, let's have a great session. Thanks, Journey. Yeah, thank you, Noam, and uh, we're really glad that you could be here with us today. Um, I'd like to take now just a few minutes to do a quick introduction round. So starting with Noel, would you mind giving our listeners a bit of background on who you are and uh, your field of expertise? Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Um, and what a great intro. I, use, I love that quote. I like could have it pinned on a wall. Um, I definitely feel it every day. Uh, I'm Noelle Silver, as you mentioned. Thank you so much. Um, excited to be here. My AI journey actually started about eight years ago. 
uh, when a product called Amazon Alexa was born. I was a very early member of that team, um, got to watch us go from, you know, a good idea to uh, about a thousand beta users to 60 million users. And now it's in over a hundred million homes. Um, and building AI when you don't actually know what it will become uh, is something that, well, I hope all of us <laughs> that are working on cool projects get to experience. But at the time it was pretty rare. Um, and then I was recruited after that to go to Microsoft and do a similar thing for the models um, in their research organization and productize those. So you'll start to see a theme I'm really big on productizing and really implementing machine learning operations, um, building code pipelines, like actually making AI real for customers. Uh, today I work at IBM. Again, I've spent a long time talking about the dream of AI. A lot of customers struggle with this. And so I went to IBM really to help customers implement. So super excited to be here. I can't wait to share some fun stories about, you know, the trials and tribulations of doing AI the easy way and the hard way. <laughs> Thank you. Awesome. Thank you. No, no, I'm really glad that you could join us. Um, next, we're going to go to Subran. Um, sorry, I'm mispronouncing. I apologize. Subramanian um, Iyer. Uh, go ahead. Why don't you tell us a bit about yourself? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Um, my name is Subramanian. I am the Senior Director for Data Sciences at Target. I lead various AI teams for forecasting in supply chain and merchandising modernization. So topics like inventory planning, digital placement, um, fulfillment, financial and budgetary planning, price optimization. These are, these are areas that my team works on. Um, prior to Target, I had been uh, head of analytics at uh, First Republic Bank, where I led various data and analytics uh, teams and built them, built several initiatives from scratch. Um, prior, prior to these leadership roles in analytics, I was in investment banking at Goldman Sachs, and I worked on derivatives pricing and structuring there um, with a special focus on financial institutions and uh, before that, I was in Silicon Valley as, a, as an engineer, as a technical person. My education was primarily in computer sciences. So I think of myself as somebody who applies math and computing to solving business problems across these various domains. Um, I, I look forward to some of the conversations today about uh, the opportunities that AI has in impacting business, as well as the challenges that are faced in deployment, development, as well as deployment of AI-based solutions in, in corporate world. So, glad to be here. Great, thank you. And yeah, Subramanian is joining us from San Francisco, if, if it wasn't all, uh, already obvious. Yeah, I am in the Bay <laughs> uh, Thank area. you so much for being here. Yeah. <laughs> um, lastly, we have Pratim Das. Uh, do you want to go ahead, introduce yourself? Thank you, and thank you, Hart, for having me. So just in terms of introductions, I'm Pratin Das. I'm a VP at uh, Capgemini Invent, uh, building the data and big data and AI advisory practice over here. Um, at Invent, we work with customers from all industries. Uh, the real focus is unleashing the human energy through technology and inclusive um, and sustainable uh, future, really. Prior to uh, Capgemini, very new, um, three weeks in row. Prior to that, I was Microsoft uh, director in the customer success unit, 
where I ran the data and AI solutions architecture team for strategic customers. Prior to that, I was in a very similar experience. I was in Amazon AWS, uh, where I was a big data architect uh, aligned to uh, some of the largest customers in EMEA. Before that, I worked in cybersecurity with Dell SecureWorks, prior to the uh, recording industry, um, working with uh, you know, large companies to ensure artists get paid for their work, uh, really. So we're really looking forward to discussing with you uh, some of the challenges, some of the great successes, and how AI is shaping you know, people, culture, society, and the environment that we see. So thank you for having me. Awesome. Thank you for joining us. Um, okay. Well, what a great panel. Um, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna dive right in because we we only have about an hour, um, about 45 minutes to an hour for the discussion, and uh, I want to get us started. So we're gonna divide today's um, event into or discussion into three topics, starting with uh, our first topic, which will be a general overview or introduction to. Um, current AI market and um, technological development. And then we'll move on to our second topic, which will cover challenges, threats, and risks, um, and followed by approaches and solutions. So I'm just gonna start us off here. Um, and this is a general question, open question for anybody on our panel, feel free to jump in and answer. Um, can you give us just a really uh, um, hyphenated overview of the state of AI technology today in 2022? Um, and how uh, its development has impacted uh, the way uh, we collect big data, collect and manage, should I say. Okay, I'll go. <laughs> and I'll, I'll start anyway. Um, well, I have a, a slightly different perspective because I think similar to uh, everyone here on this panel, we've been doing this a long time. So what seems old to me is actually new to the rest of the world. Um, so it's interesting because I feel like, you know, so many companies that I've worked with over the last 10 years really have started implementing data science, have started implementing data science, have started um, building teams. Some of those teams are now in their fifth year of existence. Like we're starting to see some maturity, but these are in now taking a step back in about 1% of all companies, <laughs> right? So I, I see the future now is really normalizing AI. Uh, we have this beautiful um, experience that's happening at Google and Microsoft and Amazon in democratizing AI models that they spent billions to build and making those available. And I, I remember uncovering like my first customized computer vision model at Microsoft, where I literally could take it and own the IP customize it for my use and sell it as a product. And I couldn't believe the rest of the world didn't know that this existed. <laughs> like I was like, so I feel like we're now coming into a time where these types of models, like the world is understanding AI a bit more. They're understanding the consequences of AI. Um, I'm having way more conversations about ethical and responsible AI. So, so we're not by any means there yet. Um, but I do think that organizations are much more set up I don't know if you know this, but there's a statistic that 90% of AI projects have failed in the past seven years. Um, and I do think that moving forward in the next seven years, that that trajectory is different because we know more now. Um, I know I know more, uh, but a lot of us as leaders know more and we're, we're doing things a little bit more responsibly. So, so that's my take is that we're not 
We're not in the future, but I see very significant investments and very significant signs that we're building AI that serves more people. And when we do that, right, everybody wins. Um, and that's, I'm, I'm pretty excited about it, but you can always count on me for the optimistic outlook. <laughs> um, but yes, I'll stop there. <laughs> Thank you, Noel. Anyone else? Yeah, I can probably chime in. Um, I, I kind of agree with Noel that uh, there's a big hype cycle around AI right now. There's, there's a statistic that 90% of AI projects have failed sounds, sounds right. Um, for a while, everybody has been thinking that, you know, AI will do everything and humans won't be required or something like that's all, that's all garbage, right? I mean, like, it's like, it's not mince words. There's certain things that machines can do and certain things that humans are required to do. Um, it, I, I think the big challenge is in understanding what are machines really good at and automating those aspects of business decision-making. This, this is not delegating all decisions to machines, right? So it's, it's really crucial to, to actually understand this kind of stuff and at a very detailed, very fine-grained, large scale computing. That's what machines are good at. Machines are not good at uh, um, working in the absence of complete data, right? Working with incomplete data, developing intuition and uh, creating some kind of uh, hypothesis and then uh, uh, making decisions in incomplete data and then changing those decisions over time. That's That's where humans are required. And that really is where augmented AI comes in where humans and machines have to kind of work together. Um, there's also this uh, belief that, you know, AI will somehow magically fix all other problems, right? So if you have terrible data, for instance, your models are going to be terrible because you can't, uh, you can't feed in terrible data and expect amazing things to happen. Um, there, there are all these memes on the internet, right? About, uh, machine learning not being able to distinguish between cats and dogs and cookies right like cookies with uh, dots placed to look like eyes or nose or whatever um, but that's that's true like you you do need good quality high quality data before before ai can actually accomplish something so understanding how business processes need to evolve and change and incorporate data and AI into it is, is the critical thing that businesses have to do and companies have to do in order to get the most value out of these investments. Like we don't, we don't have chief arithmetic officers, right? Like everybody knows how to do addition or subtraction or multiplication. It's a little bit like that. We have to incorporate these techniques in how we do other things day to day. It's not an AI project. This should be a project about well, let's understand our, our customer lifetime value. It's a customer lifetime value. You might use AI or you might use something else or you might use big data. You might uh, you know, um, introduce a human and have them do this based on their experience or you might do a mix of mm -hmm. all of that, right? So the, the project should really be about delivering business value rather than an AI project. So that's, that's the direction um, in which things should go, right? You start with a business problem and then work backward to what is the technique I need in order to solve that problem. So I'll pause there. Well said, well said. Um, 
anyone else wanted to add anything to this? Just quickly, just to add. So totally agree with the rest of my panelists. The, the additional dimension that I, I may want to add over here is it has become a whole lot easier, right? So in, in a long time, or long time ago, a few, a few years ago, it, it was very difficult. It was limited the knowledge of creating AI systems, the knowledge of dealing with large quantities of data was very limited to a very select uh, you know, set of people who are practitioners in, in this space. Um, what we have seen in the last few years with the um, sort of loser powerful algorithms, pre-built AI models available from a lot of technology vendors, you know, Microsoft, Amazon, Google, and a lot of vendors out there. And also the computational power, you know, before to run a complex model, you don't know where to start, right? So now with cloud computing, um, a huge amount of resources are very cheaply made available for you to try and experiment. What I'm trying to get to, the cost of experimentation is low now. You know, before you had to procure hardware, make a plan, and takes like months before you could even start building, let alone test your stuff. Now, if you have a fantastic idea uh, on AI, you probably can get started in seconds, and you probably be able to. Going back to the previous points from the uh, my um, colleagues is. You may not get the perfect 100% accuracy or anything like that, but you can get started very fast and, uh, and, and the cost of failure is also very low. Equally, the cost of storage is only going down and down and down, right? So I think every year it's been going down since I was born. <laughs> so uh, so that, that is true. The, the fourth thing I would say is uh, vast sets of training data are available. Um, you know, people are um, experimenting and putting models, data out there. So very rarely you start from completely scratch. So data, algorithm, all these things are available. You can get started. So what I'm trying to say, uh, for the skill has been democratized to some extent. The technology and the tools have been democratized. And we are going to see much more of that in the very near future. That's the only point I want to add, but thank you. Right. Yeah, I kind can of someone talk about. Can I can oh, I uh, say one more thing? Um, so I kind of agree with what Pratima is saying there, right? Um, I think uh, the ability to experiment from a science and engineering perspective is phenomenal right now, right? It's it's become so much easier to develop models, deploy them, test them, and so on. But where a lot of projects fail is in their adoption and their uh, the, the so-called last mile of delivering to the end user, right? And fundamentally, a lot of the business processes are still stuck in the human world, not in the computer world, right? So if, if I think about um, in the finance world, so there's loan approvals, right? You could, um, you're not allowed to do any redlining, let's say, right? So you can't discriminate based on where people live. But what machines can do very easily is approximate redlining based on other characteristics, right? So humans have to kind of intervene and make sure that that is fair and that doesn't happen, right? So a lot of the deployment and utilization is kind of gated by humans, 
right? Um, in, in retail, as I see it, a lot of processes are manual. Store shelves are stocked by humans for the most part. I mean, yes, there are some automated robots running around uh, stocking a few shelves in a couple of stores, but these are very experimental in nature right now, right? And as, as humans stock the shelves and put stickers on the, on, on the items and so on, that kind of outweighs the, the speed and the rapidity of iteration that's possible in the electronic or the computerized space, right? If, it, if it's going to take a human two days to stock an entire row of shelves, then it doesn't matter that you know, the algorithm can run in 20 seconds versus one minute, right? So a, a, a lot of focus needs to be put into the bigger picture context of where the AI algorithm is being applied and deployed rather than just optimizing for the speed and the pace and, and the rapidity of the algorithm itself. Thank you, Subramanian. Um, we, talk, we touched on and we talked about a few industries which will be impacted by the development uh, of AI. Pratim, any other niche areas uh, that you can elaborate on for us? Yes, of course. I think one, one area that I'm particularly interested in, in part of AI is the kind of uh, the machine teaching area that's uh, evolving, um, which is uh, not everyone is excited about these things, but I get, I'm, you know, get excited about little things. And uh, this to me has got the reason. Let me explain why I'm excited. I think. AI is very powerful. Let's let's you know it's not here to replace anything we do as humans. It's here to support what we do, augment things we do, improve the things we do. I mean, help us with repetitive tasks and make things better, right? But where AI can really make impact in the coming years is the challenges we face as humanity, you know, uh, society. Um, accessibility problems, environmental problems, economical problems, really with AI, we can make some significant uh, changes in the way we live in this world and we interact with this world. Um, so uh, this is a very old stats. In 2018, Gartner, uh, four years, I can't believe, uh, Gartner quoted that there were about 10,000 data scientists probably you know, exponentially grown since then. Uh, so, which means there are about 10,000 people who with AI engineers and expertise who can write and build autonomous AI uh, from, scr from scratch using code, right? And these people are very niche, you know, you know, degrees and PhDs and really understand technology to a great extent. But if you look at it, there are about 10 million software engineers out there, right? Even more now, obviously this is 2018 uh, numbers out there. So these people can obviously, they, they may not know AI as much, but with the new way, uh, democratization of AI, they can use uh, the stuff that's been created, pre-built models in their applications um, and do that. But on the other end, what I'm trying to get you to look at is there is about 100 million process experts available in the world. These are people like chemical engineers, process engineers, supply chain expertise, financial services experts, um, uh, analysts, uh, logisticians, so, you know, doctors, 
And the industry needs a lot of help. And here I think with, with AI and particularly with machine teaching and simulations, there is a huge scope of improvement and that, that can help with optimization, reducing cost, and really helping with things like sustainability goals. So this is, this is just one area that I, I am very excited about. Um, and going back to Subramanian's point, is the real application of AI, the application of AI into business outcomes, in, in this particular case, societal, economical, and environmental outcomes um, through these particular areas of AI. So. That, that's the one I wanted to mention. Yeah, just, uh, just to add on uh, Fatim's answer. Well, first, Fatim, thanks for uh, saying again that uh, it's not going to replace humans, and it looks like we're not close to Skynet uh, getting over the uh, the wall. So that's good. Uh, the second part, I do see a lot of increase in uh, industrial uh, AI. So more and more uh, AI is being used in industry. And usually that requires some real-time uh, responses for anything, any IoT or anything that uh, lives in the, in the plant to use the AI model. So I see a little bit of a, uh, I don't know if it's a shift, but some sort of a, a graduation of moving from a cloud-based AI into edge-based AI in order to enable that kind of smart uh, industrial um, uh, use case. So that's definitely something we see. And that also, you know, uh, provides some new challenges in terms of security, because if we have a model and a paradigm to secure cloud environments, now we need to see how we can secure an edge environment with an AI that requires a lot of big data. So it's definitely a new challenge, but it's a, it's a good challenge because it creates better things for us and faster and, you know, better and, and smarter. Yeah, and I want to get to the challenges and risks uh, in just a minute, but I have a, a question, uh, a final question for Noel. Um, you've had the opportunity to work with many teams over the years. You know, we talked about some of the tech giants like um, Amazon, you're now at IBM. Tell us from your experience, what does an ideal team look like when building an AI-led solution? Yeah, uh, I think it's interesting because as one of the, the biggest lessons I've learned, uh, especially at my, during my time at Alexa, is that we we were solving a very specific problem, right? At that time, it was Jeff Bezos's pet project to build a device that would sit in the kitchen of people who were wealthy and they could command it to do whatever they wanted. Um, and that was literally our, our goal, right? And now, of course, he's got a new pet project, but still the, the goal of that device was um, and the people working on it in those very early days was very narrow. And one thing I realized, like we were all very pretty much, I mean, I was a bit of an anomaly being kind of Hispanic and having curly hair and being a female, um, but many of the people on that team kind of thought the same. And so I uh, decided to create, to give you an example of why diverse teams are so important. I decided to create at that time, a category of functionality for Alexa on mindfulness and kindness. And I'm a mom of four, right? So I need as much of that as I can get. So I'm building it into the device. And literally everyone around me at that time was like, who's gonna need mindfulness in their kitchen? Who's gonna ask for that? Like from their, like that doesn't, at that time we weren't even thinking people would buy two. We had not 
figured out how to get two Alexas to live together in the same house. Now an average home has more than two. But back then, like these, it's funny how intention works, right? We did not set an intention to serve anyone other than this kind of kitchen audience. We've expanded much more than from that. But I was that one, you know, singular voice like, I mean, there might be a mom who wants mindfulness in the kitchen and maybe they don't just use it in their kitchen or I have a child with special needs. Maybe there's a classroom use case. Maybe I have a dad who lives with me. Maybe there's an elderly use case. Today, seven years later, we've, we've you know, Amazon Alexa has created product owners for these demographics. But what would have happened had we just thought a little bit earlier, right? Who could we have served if we thought a little bit earlier about that? So I got very passionate in those days about uh, this concept known as inclusive engineering. And it's not that you're going to look around and see a bunch of people that look differently than you, but that you make an intentional, you know, it's set an intention to have people that think differently, like neurodiversity, um, ethnic diversity, gender diversity, like, so that they're at least empathetic to the needs of those audiences that you can't even really consider. I'll, even as me, when I looked around, we all kind of nodded and went, this is awesome what we're doing, <laughs> right? Like we were all very proud of ourselves, but we left entire demographics out. People even in the United States with an accent couldn't use Alexa because we never thought to ask them for their data, you know? So, but if I had someone on my team that had an accent, it would have been a little bit more intuitive for us to go that route. So, so my key or, or tip to those the best software I've built has been with people who are not necessarily representative of every community, but are at least empathetic and knowledgeable about communities that I'm not thinking about. And the, and the, the tricky part to this is, is that when you build a team like this, on the surface, it looks a bit chaotic, but more importantly, it looks like people never get along because their ideas are always exchanging. They're always saying, have you thought about this? Have you thought? And it looks on the surface like, Gosh, are you guys arguing all the time? And it's why, you know, I think um, you made such a great point for Tim about like, in addition to, of course, the academics and the PhDs we need to build models, we actually are gonna need people people because we need to bring these diverse people together and have people who can facilitate conversations to make better software. And so that is kind of my, my tip um, from the hard way uh, that we ended up doing okay, right? The product survived but we could have served so many more people if we had a slightly more inclusive group of individuals building it. And today, 13% of the world's data scientists are women. And it shows, it shows in every AI product we release. Um, so yeah, so I'm pretty passionate about that. I appreciate you asking. <laughs> yeah, I love that, Noel. And I, when, I'm, when I'm hearing from you and Prati and both, um, after like, years of experience working on the business side, you've come to understand um, the potential impact uh, that AI can play also in doing social good. Uh, Pratim talked about a bit about uh, sustainability and addressing the climate crisis. Uh, you're talking about inclusion and uh, human-centered design uh, to include you know, neurodivergent populations. I think, I think this is really great. And if we have scientists like you developing these solutions, then we're in good hands. Um, Noam, I have actually uh, one more question before we move on to challenges and solutions. Um, I just wanted to get Maybe it's a bit early to ask this question, but I wanted to get your input on or your insight on the development of cybersecurity uh, solutions that have developed around uh, mm. AI uh, to meet the needs of AI and ML-based solutions. Yeah. I would uh, split it into three, right? One is AI for cybersecurity. 
So one of the problems in cybersecurity is the lack of uh, enough people and knowledge in the space. There are literally millions of jobs all open right now in cybersecurity, and there's not enough people in order to do the work. A lot of that work is just analyzing a lot of data. What kind of attacks are coming? What kind of traffic do we see? What's happening in our systems? A lot of that can be solved, or not, it's not solved, just uh, get better with uh, AI. So if AI can uh, prioritize and, and focus the teams on what's important, then we don't need as many people to analyze all that data. So that, that would be AI for cybersecurity. So that was one example with, with uh, analyzing data for a, a SIM or a security operation center but it can be in anything. If I can detect attacks or if I can uh, detect any kind of uh, wrong functions, uh, th th those all can uh, help cybersecurity. The other part is cybersecurity for AI. So cybersecurity for AI, as I said, the, the root of AI is big data. And once you get a lot of data in one place, that becomes a big source of exposure. Who has access to it? What happens when people access it? Uh, so there's a lot of security to be done for the data itself. So who can access it, how they can access it, what are the rules to get access to it, what did they access? So a lot of those questions needs to be answered. And then uh, there is the, the, uh, the, the, the uh, challenge of protecting the model itself, because now it's on, not only the data that is sensitive, the model becomes very sensitive. Uh, and that's a big problem because in order to run AI, you either need to collect all the data in one, in one location and analyze it, or you can do different things like federated learning that would uh, do models in different places and then you gather the models together. But each one of those models is an intellectual property that is very important and any kind of manipulation to that or any kind of, uh, of um, a problem with availability of those things will hurt the, uh, the AI model itself. So that's another aspect that uh, needs to be uh, addressed. And the last thing is about uh, privacy, really. So AI involves with uh, sensitive data about people. So we need to make sure that uh, private uh, data is, is uh, protected. But also, as uh, Noel said, that the model itself is not uh, geared towards a specific uh, thinking or a specific bias of people. Because at the end, machine learning emutate or emulate people thinking. And if the data is geared towards one specific way of thinking or one specific way of uh, gender or ethnicity or anything that uh, is biased, the AI will do the same thing as uh, the, the, the human does. So that needs to be uh, addressed as well. Exactly. Definitely. Thank you, Noam. Uh, that was a great summary. I want to move on to our second topic. And uh, we're having such a great discussion. And as the moderator, I'm losing track of time. So let's try to keep our responses a little more concise. Uh, and uh, hopefully, we'll get through all of our questions today. So moving on to our second topic regarding challenges uh, and risks. Um, I'm going to start off with Subramanian. I would love to get your input on some of the business challenges related to AI adoption. Yeah, the 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 biggest business challenge is really that uh, 
now the the work that is done does not correspond well with the business problems that actually need to be solved and and the ways in which processes are set up in in the companies or the users that are trying to use those uh, um, solutions right so um, getting ahead of that very early on trying to understand what are we trying to build and who are we trying to serve and how will they actually be using this at a very early stage of the process is is key and that involves not just the discovery process but as noel was saying earlier involving a lot of different um, perspectives right being very inclusive in uh, what does our target demographic look like? Who's going to use this application? What if somebody else that we have not thought about actually tries to use this? How will this work for them, right? Um, this is, I think, uh, the biggest one. The second, the second biggest one, in my opinion, is this uh, fear associated with the robots are coming for our jobs, that uh, we will all be run by machines, right? So education and uh, teaching people what is what is reasonable, what is possible, and what is unlikely to happen. There's there's a lot of hype. I mean, there are there are people out there who kind of uh, position AI as being ready to take over the world, but we are no closer to general intelligence than than we were many decades ago. Like even with all of the information that is out there, all of the data processing and the compute capacity out there. Yes, computers can play chess and can play Go and can play various games really, really well, right? But that does not mean that computers can uh, tackle general intelligence, right? So I think it's very important to recognize that specific areas in which um, computers can play to their strengths will, will get computerized, will get automated over time. But this does not pose a threat to all human work going away, right? And this, is, this has been a constant theme over centuries, right? I mean, when the industrial revolution first happened, people were worried about, oh, all the textile mills are going out of business, we will be left with no jobs, but hey, come on, we are not, we are not all working in textile mills or in, in farms right now. So this is, uh, this is bound to happen. Human wants and desires are unlimited. So there will always be something more for all of us to do. Um, and, that understanding has to be has to be created in the absence of creating that the social inequalities that will be created by even more automation will drive social strife so that is that is a big part of uh, challenges facing facing ai or more automation using ai mm. good point last point um, and we already seen that, right, with uh, social media platforms, and many of them are essentially are um, algorithms uh, feeding people news feeds, choosing what content to share. Um, yeah. yeah, I want to. Yeah, social that. media platforms. Um, there's also the gig economy, where a lot of people feel like they're they're not being um, they're they're being discriminated against, or they're not uh, they're not getting what they should be getting, and. You know that a lot of the computers are taking over is is fed from the dissatisfaction from so creating these these mechanisms that will make people less afraid right and creating more equity building that into into the system and into the mechanisms is critical definitely thank you 
Um, Noelle, what challenges do you see organizations uh, struggle with when trying to operationalize their AI projects? I'll tell you uh, from a couple different perspectives, because um, operationalizing AI, it's actually, it's what we're all trying to do now if we've been working in machine learning in any any form. I, I work with lots of Fortune, you know, let's say 100 companies, and they're all like, we've got this team and they built a model. And so when we use this term operationalizing, really it means, is anyone using that thing? Like, is anyone using the models? It, it didn't matter before. I think as we mentioned earlier, right? Like in the 20 years ago, people just built models to, to like as an experiment. Like that was the whole point of AI. Um, we were experimenting with different things. It was an academic exercise. Today, when we start an AI project, we expect productization. We expect to put it into production, which is a very strange thing for an AI model because it's broken before it gets fixed and we put it into, anyway, there's so many challenges with it. So operationalizing is just this fancy term for really getting your models used by the people that need it the most. And what I have found today is that I can go in and if you've got a model, it's very easy today. My, my tip is of course, learn about the evolution of DevOps, right? DevOps is something that is, if you're in software engineering, you know it and love it and it has changed the way we do everything. But it's funny because machine learning teams don't have that same history. They don't have those same pains. They didn't get to that answer. So they're not there yet. And so when I come and I introduce DevOps, they're like, oh, so I encourage those of you who are not specifically in AI today and happen to have a sysadmin or DevOps background, like there is a future, a huge future for you because most of the models, it doesn't matter how good they are. It doesn't even matter if they work or not. It only matters if someone can access them and use them in production. And when I say that, I really mean, can you put it in a container? Can that container run anywhere? Can it run on AWS or Azure or GCP? Can it leverage other services, right? This is based on, 20 years of software engineering, microservices and service-oriented architecture. But now data science is at that kind of tipping point of, does it become functional? Do I get my return on my investment? Or does it become one of the 90%, right, that failed? And I think it's because these data, science, uh, data scientist teams, they don't have that SRE or site reliability engineering skill set to take their product to market, right? To give it to their devs in every line of business and make it possible for them to use it. So that's a huge opportunity. Um, or not many of us like to do this work. <laughs> um, and some of us are intimidated by AI, but it's a huge opportunity because otherwise these models that are extremely capable of improving the ingenuity of people will die on the vine because there's no one there to carry it over to production. Um, and it's it's uh, it'll be a sad thing if, if we don't do that. But I'm recruiting, obviously. <laughs> Not people into my org, but just people into this methodology of like operationalizing data science. It's a it's a challenge, but it's something that we can do. And it looks like Pratik. Definitely, might and we're going to <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Go ahead, uh, Pratik. I also you know, add your two cents, and then also expand for us maybe on um, talk us through some of the governance frameworks that exist. Oh yeah, good. I, I was just really passionately listening to what you yes. say. <laughs> Is is so true, and it's so true. You know, the, the thing is, I, I feel like the, your response was from a, like a pedigree software engineer who's gone into the whole 
in their standard life cycle and train itself into the yeah why can't you think of devops right you know it's absolutely so true uh, but i understand it's not straightforward in machine learning mlops you have some additional considerations to take in place what what do you put in uh, in a source control is it the code or is it the model or is it the algorithm right so anyway or, or is it the data so, uh, so let, let me talk. Uh, take a little step back and really think about general governance that one needs to think about. And I think it's very important to think about that from day one. That way, when things are ready, you're ready to deploy. You don't have to go back and go through the whole process of architectural reviews, et cetera. So take that as a, 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 as a kind of a foundational basis. So, in the interest of time, I'll try and very summarize the things. I think there are four areas. One is you need to create principles for your organization, right? What are your AI ethics principles? And there are there are so many out there. You don't have to start from scratch. And I think there's like one, there's a recent Bartman and Glenn study which showed there are like 100 of those um, AI ethics principles out there. Even my, my last job, Microsoft had a very um, focused set of six principles of fairness, accountability, transparency, uh, inclusiveness, reliability, and safety, uh, underpinned by things like privacy and security. So, and the key thing is when you're creating your governance model, don't make it so complex, full of legal jargon, there's 80 pages of paper, documentation, no one is going to adopt it. Simplicity is the key to adoption. Make it simple, easy to explain, easy to read, easy to ingest, easy to execute. Uh, so first start with principles. What are you, depending on which industry you are in, you know, senior leaders need to work with everyone on the team and create those very high level principles. And post that everywhere, you know, in your, in your channels, in your Slack or Yammer or whatever you use, make sure it's, it's there, it's available, or, or in your public domain as well. Second, create practices around you. Principles don't last unless you have practices. How are you going to execute upon it? And, and I spend a lot of time working with chief data officers, chief data analytics officers, and we all agree that, you know, a strategy, is unless it's executable, it's just dream, right? So let's let's how do we make that into execute? How do we create practices around it? So yeah, you're great to put fairness, but how do you measure fairness? How do you ensure that fairness is built into your DevOps pipeline, in your process, in your testing teams, that they actually check for fairness? The tools check. So kind of the third point, tools. Um, you can't create practices and principles, but not have the right tooling around it. You must think about that. What are the tools that you need to use? So a lot of the cloud providers come with governance tools around it, even like, you know, uh, their ML solutions uh, have got surrounded by loads of tools, which kind of looks at fairness, transparency, um, have got audit, Audit, audit available for the models. They've got auditing available for the data. Let's check for um, um, you know any variations happening in the data set. So all of those needs to be available in the tooling. Sometimes you can use open source tools. Sometimes just rely on what comes from the vendor. 
Uh, you may not have all the features. You don't have to wait for five years to wait for the features. Just start using it and, and, and you'll automatically start uh, evolving those yourself. And then all of those wrapped around with the governance framework. What sort of organizational structure needs to be in place? You know, uh, there, there could be a hub and spoke model where you know, there's a central organization working with chief data officers creates those sort of ethics governance principles but how do you ensure in large organizations that's been implemented you know in microsoft had a, a responsible ai framework but there are champions in each business unit in countries to ensuring that the hub and spoke model is working central policies are adopted and utilized on a regular basis and changes were being fed back so things could adopt so I know I went about, it's a very complex topic, but it doesn't have to be. If you break it down to those four areas of principles, practices, tools, and the governance around it, you can do it, everyone can do it. And don't overthink it. Start small, I, I, I say start small. Uh, is, so think big, start small and act fast. Thank you. Wonderful device. And with that, I'd like to move on to our third topic of the evening, which is approaches and solutions. And starting with Noel, um, you know, so if it's follow up to Pratin, if a customer is to implement production AI projects, what advice would you have to give them? I was like trying to write down that thing you just wrote that was, or said. That was awesome. I love it. Think big, start small. Um, I feel like that's a good mantra. Uh, I think we, you know, we talked about this a bit already, but one of the biggest things um, I try to tell organizations as they're getting started, it's very much related to what you just said, is I call it an AI manifesto. You really do have to set an intention and in that you have to be intentionally bigger than you think, right? Because AI is never just what you're going to do, what you think you're going to do with it today. And, and this is why creating an inclusive team, a a divergent thinking team is so important because they're going to be able to come up with these use cases you never thought. And I, you know, encourage my teams to think about like what's the best happy path. We go through this process. Um, it's called design justice, where you don't just talk about when often in UX and in these design thinking sessions, we are very optimistic about the world we're going to improve. And we never really think about the bad things that will happen. And so I almost call it instead of goal setting, it's like fear setting, right? Where you go and say, what is the worst thing that could happen? And even then you can't prepare sometimes for AI. Um, but it's not to of course go be negative. It's simply to say, okay, how do we avoid that happening? To give you a very specific example, I it was very disheartened when I'd get off the stage um, talking about Amazon Alexa in those early years. And there would be people who would be like, hey, why would you create something that I'm teaching my child to command who has a female voice? Why would you, why would you do that? Why would you characterize it that way? And then later, five years later, now I have an entire demographic of women named Alexa who are really upset about how their life has changed because hundred million people command a device that happens to be called Alexa. Things I never would have never did think about. Um, and so as you go into production, just don't think small. It's actually, you know, just like you said, think big, start small, because you will. In AI, you're going to start with this little model. Our model was very small when we started. It was barely even AI. It was mostly regex and pattern matching in NLU with Alexa. Like, it was nothing magical. 
but then it grew to something. And without that intention, you end up hurting people and you don't want to, you're there. You want to serve these people. Um, and so I always encourage people when you're starting, create an AI manifesto, think big um, so that you are prepared for the best and the worst. And you can serve more people um, with, you know, with, cause you don't, you don't intend to hurt people, but if without an intention to not hurt them, that's what ultimately happens. And I've seen it happen with hundreds of customers, big names, just go, you know, go on Google, right? Go to Wall Street Journal and look for AI failures. Like there's a bunch of them and they're big. And it's only because they just never thought it would be used that way. Never, no one thought it would be asked that question. So, um, and you'd be surprised how very impactful simply setting that intention can be on all the data scientists that end up applying it. The last thing I'd say, so that's the top of the idea. The last thing is give them a vehicle to pull the chain on a model that's not going to work or that's going to hurt people in production. Give them a vehicle that gets to the top of your organization that says, do not do this thing and investigate it like anything, right? Um, it's weird that we today let um, profit, <laughs> trump our concerns about models. And then we're surprised when we show up in the press going, wow, that model completely disenfranchised an entire demographic of people. Um, we need to make sure that if there's a person who knows that that's going to happen, that they have a way of being heard. Um, and that's really just good leadership. <laughs> so thank you. That's it. Oh my God. No, I love this. I, I, I love all your contributions. Thank you so much for that. Wonderful. And uh, Talking about uh, thinking big, starting small pro team, can you give us some more insights or advice on scaling when it comes to, to scaling our models, right? Um, so maybe we, we started out uh, in one place and then as we grew, we, we came across, you know, uh, all these challenges, including potentially excluding, uh, excluding certain groups or populations. Uh, how do you approach issues like these and what other advice do you have to give us? It's, it's a quite an elaborate topic, um, but what, what I will try and try and break it down to the um, the way what, what I would encourage people to start thinking about scaling AI, right? So it's, scaling AI is not a technical problem. It's not just technology. Is is the conjunction, is, is the kind of where, where technology, people and process meet together. So it's the three things. You can't, without that, you can't do that. Technology alone is not good. But there are technical considerations and that's to be the easiest one. So maybe, maybe I can just quickly talk about a few lines there. So when you're scaling AI, when you're trying to solve a big complex problem, a big complex like pro basics of process engineering, you break it down to small manageable chunks. And there may be pre-trained models. Someone else has trained with millions and millions sets of data to be able to do that. So you do not have to reinvent the wheel. So break it down and see where you can use pre-trained pre model. And now when it comes to things that you actually have to do yourself, you have to customize. There is technology available. I mean, I mean, I've I've seen articles. I've done, I haven't done it myself yet. And I know our clients are doing this. They they train neural networks with about seventeen billion parameters, and you know, each of those have got like seventy eight transformer layers uh, underneath. So it is highly possible in the cloud these days, and people are doing it. So, but then really think of the technology. If if it's uh, image recognition or training based on um, you know images or videos 
you may want to consider not only CPU, GPU technology, the uh, FCG, uh, 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 yeah, uh, I, can't, I can't even pronounce that. So, um, so there, there are loads of other technologies available when you're dealing with graphics processing as well. So really look, not only look at uh, software, but um, look at hardware as well when you are trying to, uh, um, so FPGA, I wanted to say, when you are trying to train models um, based on software and hardware needs. Then beyond the technology, I think there are four things you need to think as, as an organization. One is the coverage. What is, as an organization, these are your key priorities. The AI team, the solutions you're building, are they aligned with the business outcomes of the organization? So, and what sort of coverage do you have? Are you covering the key outcomes the organization is trying to achieve? Then is the capability. Look at the talent pool. Look, we in a Noel covered on the diversity. You cannot build AI models unless you have teams who have got a very good diverse and inclusive inclusivity as part of the agenda. So build teams. Really think of upskilling existing people. Also think of bringing bringing people from other industries, um, other talents as well. You know, in order to do that. And the tooling is also becomes very good when it comes to capability. The next is agility. Going back on the theme of uh, think big, start small, and act fast. Agility is key. You can't just sit on a great idea and spend years and try and produce something quick and let people contribute and iterate. And some of this stuff is going open source and people are contributing globally and in order to make things much better. And the fourth aspect of, uh, in terms of scaling is the culture. And culture is, one, is the ability to fail fast, things, acknowledge things will go wrong, but what are your guardrails to be able to see when things are going to go wrong? What sort of telemetry you put in place to see when your model is gone production, thousands of users are using it. The first sign of something going wrong, you should be alerted. Now, what sort of telemetry you put together what is, what is the team culture in terms of celebrating success? Even the little wins you have, work together and celebrate the success. Um, you know, tell the world about it. Not every you know, stuff you can talk about the, um, in your organization, the world, but where you can celebrate, celebrate success as well. So those are the key things uh, I would mention. In, in addition to technology, the people process, is very important in the people process really thinks of think of coverage capability agility and culture thank you wonderful thank you Pratim. um i have a i have a few more questions and then i want to move on to q a and we're having a very active discussion in the chat so um i'm going to try to fast forward us to there um Subramanian, my next question for you, first of all, anything to add uh, <laughs> to, to anything that's been said? Um, and also maybe if you have some recommended uh, approaches to deploying AI-based projects, is there one size fits all model? We just discussed that there, there really isn't, um, but maybe you can elaborate a bit on this for us and give us your, your two cents. Yeah, thank you. There, there really isn't one size fits all, right? You have, you have to really understand what is the business purpose you're trying to achieve and start start from there and build towards it, right? So, um, I mean, let's let's say, so I'm, I'm in retail, right? So let's say the goal of a retailer is to reduce out of stocks at the stores. 
um, how can AI help this? AI can help it in many different ways. You could say, if I have cameras in the stores, then I can start looking at the camera images and I can tracking, start tracking out of stocks. Well, you could build that, or you could uh, just take the information from the point of sale systems and you could say, I could, I'm going to you know, merge this real-time data with my inventory information and start estimating out of stocks that way, right? Um, you have people who are working in the stores, they have handheld devices, they could take pictures or they could enter information. So all of these could lead to different approaches to solving that business objective of reducing out of stocks in the store, right? Now, which of these makes sense will vary from retailer to retailer because different, different stores are set up in different ways, different organizations operate differently, the processes are different. So I, it, it's really key important and like the, the probably the most critical aspect of AI development and deployment is actually understanding the art of what is feasible in the technology and tooling and culture that we have in our organization. And this is this is the first thing that everyone who's working on any AI related business transformation project needs to really understand, right? Is this feasible in our culture? Is this feasible given our state of technology or tooling, right? Um, and those are all important. It's not just about yet more algorithms, right? I, I, I wrote on the chat a little while ago that uh, even more algorithms is probably not what we need. We need a lot more ML ops than even more ML algorithms. So there's a lot of focus on cool techniques and technology but the focus really needs to be on how do we integrate with what already exists. There are processes, there are systems, there are tools. You need to integrate with all of this and you need to think about what is doable in the culture within the context of what's already happening, right? Um, that's a big one. In terms of, is there is there one MLOps platform that will fix all of our problems? No, there isn't, right? Um, AI is used for various things. A, a platform that is used for deep neural networks is not going to be the, likely not going to be the most appropriate platform for let's say statistical forecasting, right? Um, so depending on what needs to be accomplished, the methodology and the platforms and the infrastructure needs to flex. So this means you have to build in resilience and robustness into the AI teams and the machine learning teams and the machine learning operations teams so that they can flex according to whatever the needs are, right? Um, that's That flies in the face of a lot of um, organizations which try to accomplish uh, or which try to optimize for as much efficiency as possible. So efficiency says that you'll do one thing and you'll you'll do that one thing really, really well, right? What you what you want is a broad set of capabilities that you can deploy to multiple business problems, right? Um, again, this is an area that is pretty much in flux, right? DevOps is understood much better than MLOps at this point, right? The even just the notion of what is the equivalent of GitHub for ML or for AI, it's, it's truly hard. Because what does it mean for a model to have changed? Is it, is, has your model changed when the data underlying that model has changed, right? You, you might not have changed a single line of code. You might not have changed any parameters, but still your outputs might change because some data changed underneath, right? Um, so getting to grips with all of this is, uh, 
is really important. And the only way to do that is to have teams that are resilient, that can adapt to the changes. Right? Um, we've seen a lot of improvement in terms of scale in the last decade. Right? What, what was considered practically impossible 10 years ago is now considered routine. Right? So again, if unless you have teams and processes and, and a culture that is willing to change with the times, it becomes really hard to deploy and adopt AI solutions. It's well said. And does anyone want to add anything on onto that? I would just say echo it 100% that mindset is just as important as technical skill set and that, you know, you can do like we have, we've been saying this whole time, like you can build great technology, but if you don't have people that have the right growth mindset, I mean, your three sentence thing is exactly that, right? Like you have to have people that are willing to be resilient, that are willing to be adaptable. You know, I heard someone recently say, of course, we need people with high IQ and we need people with EQ. I'm sure you've heard of this, the emotional quotient, emotional intelligence, but really now we're in a season of AQ, adaptability quotient, and we need people on these teams that are willing to say, I don't know, but I can learn that. Or I don't, you know, like all of Alexa was built by people who had never really done NLU specifically before. They were data scientists. We also had sociologists, endocrinologists, like we had all these different um, different scientists coming together to try and do something that had never been done before. And so it takes a specific mindset to be willing to try and fail um, and try and fail again. And literally AI fails every day there is no perfect ai model and it's not for everyone but you you do have to have this kind of growth mindset and willingness to pursue a desired good outcome for everyone otherwise you quit and that's what we see when we see organizations say facial recognition is broken we're going to throw it away um and we're not going to do that we're going to take it out of the market when the answer is actually less we move away from it and more we get the right data so it does the right thing like it's AI is not a finite, it's broken or fixed. It's a constant evolution to your point around DevOps and you know the, the, the point like when a model is constantly growing, it's a living document. How do we track that? How do we productize that? Um, but yeah, I think mindset is huge. So I'm so grateful that you brought that up. <laughs> Wonderful. Um, well, I have a final question for um, Noam and then we can move on to our Q&A. Um, Noam, maybe you can talk a little bit about um, the future of uh, cybersecurity for AI. We talked about a little bit about uh, technological innovation in the field. We talked a little bit about risks. Um, what does what does cybersecurity look like uh, in the future, and uh, and and how exactly we're going to protect our models? Yeah. So I, I think we, in order to understand the future, we need to understand a little bit the past. And uh, the past is we try to control AI by anonymizing data, by limiting access to data, and that doesn't work very well. It works to a point, but not, uh, but is not as useful or as utilized as uh, as clear data. So the reason that we are using those tools anonymization, de-identification, or just saying you just have this amount of, this amount of data and not a, a big amount of data is a lack of trust and a lack of um, standard way uh, and standard contracts to get access to data and control what can get access to that data. I, I think that's the main challenge. 
And I think that's what is being worked on right now. So one, uh, we'll see more and more even enhancements or advancements in uh, privacy enhancing techniques. So not just use, let's just remove, uh, I don't know, age, let's just remove uh, gender. I think we'll see less of that. And we'll see more of maybe AI for creating data for AI. So I think we'll, we'll see more of that. I think we'll see more of um, encryption because of uh, uh, hardware um, development. I think we'll see more hardware that is able to deal with encryption and process data as it is encrypted. So homomorphic encryption is kind of an emerging space right now. We'll see more of that uh, becoming more readily available. Uh, I think Pratim talked about GPUs and FPGAs and more dedicated processors that will be able to process AI faster. They'll be able to process the data as it's a, a more secure way of data. But I also think we'll see more standard way to contract data. So, you know, I'm envisioning something like a LinkedIn for data. So instead of saying, hey, this is who I am and this is all of my attributes and what I did and the type of uh, person I am, you'll see the same thing for data and you will have a contract to say, why do you need the data? How are you going to use it? Uh, how are you going to access it? And there, there will be a way to enforce that. So that's the important part. So not only to understand what is the data and how to use it, but how do you enforce, you know, who can access the data, what they can do with it, for how long it's going to stay with them. Uh, uh, and you'll be able to revoke that uh, instantly. So I think that's where the industry is going to. Uh, you know, we all have a uh, stake in that because we all want to use more AI and, and make it safer and better. And, uh, you know, I, I always hear data scientists say, we need all the data in its clear format. And I always hear security people with, who says you need less data and it's all either encrypted or anonymized. So that's that that constant challenge will have to be resolved. And uh, I think we'll use a lot of technology and uh, a lot of standards and, and uh legal contracts in order to deal with those kind of uh, challenges. Definitely, thank you, Noam. And thank you to everyone on our panel. This was a really wonderful discussion. Not what I was expecting, but still great. Um, we talked a lot about uh, important ethical questions and security challenges as well. And um, any place that we can bring those two uh, topics together, I, I'm there for. Um, so just, I want to move on to Q&A, we have about 15 minutes left and we have some questions that are, have come up in the chat. Of course, I encourage our audience to share um, questions in the Q&A um, or in the chat, if you can find the Q&A, um, you can share there as well. But I'm just uh, going back on some questions that we've gotten from our audience. The first one um, being, uh, what characterizes uh, or what characteristics should high quality data have or what determines the quality of data? Um, anyone who would like to answer, feel free to jump in. Yeah, so I want, I want to talk about data a little bit. I started typing in the chat. I think I sent it only to the panelists. I didn't send it to the attendees. So let, let, me, let me talk about this a little bit, right? So think about, think about effective science. So effective science is about running experiments. So if you, if you take, take something, take the theory of evolution. Right. So Charles Darwin actually went out to the Galapagos Islands to collect data. Right. There's a lot of stigma associated with data today. It's like 
I'm not a data analyst, I'm a data scientist. I don't build dashboards. I don't work in analytics. I don't want to build, like, that. that's broken, right? Any data scientist needs to be self-sufficient. They need to be able to look at the data, run exploratory analysis, figure out, create hypotheses, figure out whether that's right or wrong, figure out what needs to happen and then go build the models, right? Like this extreme focus on I build cool algorithms is, is the cause for a lot of hubris and failure of AI um, projects, right? So my, in my opinion, we should not be having teams that collect data and teams that use data. They, they need to be, it, it's fine for somebody to be more of an expert in data processing than on statistics, that's, that's perfectly fine. But the statisticians also need to be able to analyze data and work with it and need to have a real fluency in that, right? Um, to the extent that these are people on different teams, those teams to need, need to work extremely closely. They need to be in the same sprints or need, need to roll up into the same organizational structure and so on, right? So a big chunk of the data is not fit for use for data science happens because people forget this. People think that data engineering happens in a vacuum. And then the science of data science happens in, in a different silo, right? So if you bring those together, then you're much, much less likely to have poor quality data and so on and so forth, right? Now, a lot of data originates from operational processes, which are often owned by the business lines, right? The business verticals rather than technology or, or the data science organizations. Again, creating this philosophy of partnership where data science is trying to solve a business problem, incentivizes people to actually ensure that the data collection, the data processing, and the science algorithms that consume those data sets are aligned with, with the business goal that is being tried, that, that is being uh, attempted. Um, that's the best way to get clean data is to make it clear to people what that clean data will actually buy them. And honestly, what if, if somebody tells you that I don't value what you're trying to do, then that tells you that this is not something you should spend your time doing. Like if, if, uh, cleaning up this data and building a model on top of it is not worth the effort, right? If the benefits you get from it is not really worth the effort of doing it, then maybe you should not do it, right? There's, there's a big um, misallocation of resources going after uh, extremely tiny gains with a lot of cost associated with it, right? So one way of avoiding that and that's, that's another way in which AI projects fail, right? Where you do a, run a giant project and then the benefits you get from it are tiny, right? So if, if your data cleaning and data acquisition costs are enormous, then this is probably telling you that you have, you have uh, stumbled on a problem which is uh, not economically viable or economically feasible to solve at this point. Diana is asking, how can I be sure that the data I'm extracting meets the needs of the data scientists or the team? So I think this comes back to the, the manifesto we talked about earlier, right? Like the identification of early, like everyone needs to be on the same page about what, what you're trying to do. And it's better, of course, if we all get together and we think about the big things that we're trying to do, but at the very minimum, you have to have a shared goal and going exactly to what you just mentioned, we also have to have very specific, we'll call them KPIs, OKRs, a piece of data that you are trying to hit. We call them business outcomes at IBM. 
but we guarantee business outcomes. When we start a project, we literally say we will achieve 35% reduction in X, 95% increase in Y. And if we don't get there, we don't get paid, right? And of course, we're, we're relatively conservative in our assessment, but, but that's what drives all the other things, right? The identification of what you're going to do tied to a key metric you're going to use to measure when you've done it. Because with AI, if you don't put that box that says, yes, it's done or no, it's not, it becomes a project that can live on until it takes a bunch of stuff down with it, right? And then there's no, no outcome, no, no one going, you did it, congratulations, check the box, move on to the next phase. So having that metric for success, I think is really important. And then Finally, like building, when you build this, you know, manifesto or idea, I have a project, we call them production pilots, because now as soon as I release a model that can like reduce cost by 35%, I no longer control the model. Like it literally gets deployed in places that I never agreed to, right? Immediately, because they're like, if this works, we're going to do it everywhere. And that's what will happen with models. When you build an AI model that works, People are going to use it that you never thought would use it because they want the thing that you got for this team. And so when that, in order to make sure that you're serving them, you want to create mechanisms for collecting data for all of those constituencies, because that's when your model starts to drift, when people start to use it that weren't your intended demographic. And then the decisions start to change. And if you don't watch it very closely, to give you an example at Alexa, we watched our accuracy every single day. And it was a monolithic model every day. And there was someone, not me, because I don't think like this, but someone who could look and be like, oh, zoom in on that. <laughs> look, there's a slight deviation and some random, like, like you said, you have to have people that are skilled, not just in building the model, but also in reading the results of those models in identifying the visualizations of those models. So yeah, I think it's very important um, to think about the, the goal and then narrowly focus on achieving those results and using that to drive, how do we collect the right data? How do we expand our scope? Um, because like you said, that's why a lot of projects fail because they have no direct outcome. And once we shifted at IBM to this number, we became massively more successful because we now of course had models that were working <laughs> and delivering value. And people were like, great, we'll do more of that. If you don't, you lose trust, and then ultimately AI becomes exactly what it, it, it is in many companies, just hype, a hype cycle. A final question we have here in our chat um, before we wrap up. Thank you, Noelle. Um, Diana is asking, data is increasingly being generated by non-digital sources. Uh, do we need a different approach? I can have a crack at it, but it's a very complex topic, which is, um, you know, needs uh, needs a lot, lot of thinking, and uh, it could be a philosophical answer as well. But I, I would go back to the foundations of software engineering, right? So, and, and then really look at it. You can't monitor anything unless you have, for example, a catalog. So yes, you may want to gather data from non-digital sources, right? Uh, but maybe start thinking of categorization first. You know, what, where, where is data going to come, back, come from? What are the different categories coming from? And then really think of creating a cat catalog. Like when you are dealing with loads and loads of data, the concepts like data lake, data mesh, all these things comes very nicely. 
nothing worse unless you have a metadata lake. If really at that scale, you ought to think about your catalog, your lineage and things like this. So, so general software engineering foundations and good practices of handling data, like the governance frameworks, the auditing, the tooling, the lineage, all these things uh, play very important. So, it's a complex topic because you really don't know what you are actually asking. So it, it, I, I could have just said depends rather than that. I just went back to the software engineering foundations uh, and that's that's how I would address it. Hopefully it kind of gives you something to think about, but maybe others have some other ways of answering it. That's a great answer. Yeah, I'll, just add, I'll just add on top of that, that metadata is data and lineage, the journey of data is also data and they all need protection. And sometimes we forget about it. Those are sensitive types of data as well. Noel, you wanted to ask something? No, I think you you actually covered it. I just was like, I think it's, it's actually important that we have non-digital and digital, just like structured and unstructured. You know, it's both and, but I think the question was really right. It's increasingly. So I do think it's something we wanna keep in check. Like at Amazon, we had a fraction where we dedicated resources to getting a fraction of our utterances raw, not automated, not through um, a service, but we had physical people who worked for Amazon going through and like tagging and annotating utterances manually. And it gave us a new type of richness, a new type of metadata that we were able to store. And so I do think it's a both and, and you really do have to kind of consider, it's, it's not bad that that's happening. It's just, you wanna keep it in check so it doesn't override you know, the very benefits you're trying to achieve in some of these more, um, you know, AI data-driven sources. But thank you. Thank you, Noelle. And um, thank you to uh, everyone for joining. Thank you to all our wonderful panelists, uh, Pratim Das, uh, Noel, Silver, Subraman, Neon, Ayer, and Noam for, um, this was a really wonderful discussion and I hope uh, I get to host you guys again uh, for part two, or this was a part two, right? But a part three and four and five. Um, if anyone from our audience would like to get in touch with today's panelists, you can reach out to them directly. Uh, within a few days, you'll be getting an email, um, receiving an email with the contact information of each of our panelists. So don't be afraid to reach out and drop them a line. If you have any further questions on any of today's uh, discussion points. Um, and with that, uh, I will just wrap things up. If you want to stay up to date on Hub Security's upcoming webinars, you can follow us, <clears throat> excuse me, follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter, and you can also check out our weekly digest on Medium. Um, and with that, I just say thank you final time and thank you to our wonderful panelists. And I hope to see you guys next time. Thanks a lot, take care. Appreciate it.